Do you know what it's like to be in a situation that goes from bad to worse? All of us, in one way or another, have been in situations like that, that seem to downward spiral in discouragement and defeat. Situations that go from bad to worse. Maybe that's a, a work situation, or a health crisis, or a relationship that's run amok. It goes on a downward spiral into deeper, deeper levels of discouragement. And we're left wondering, how does this get turned around? What's the way out of this? What hope do we have? This morning, we come to a point in the Bible where things go from bad to worse. We ride this downward spiral of discouragement, downward spiral of sin and separation from God. And the question that remains is how do we get out of this? What hope do we have? in the midst of this downward spiral. So I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four in the seats, uh, you can find uh, that passage on page three, Genesis chapter four, and we're continuing in our series in the book of Genesis. Our goal is to move through Genesis chapters one through 11. Uh, by the end of May, we'll be wrapped up with this series that we've entitled God the Creator and Redeemer. God the Creator and Redeemer. So I want to invite you to follow along. If you need a Bible, we always mention this. We have uh, free hardback black Bibles um, in the bookcase nearest to the men's restroom. Please take one of those if you need it. Um, Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. 
And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in the tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of instruments, bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The theme of Genesis 4 is this. As human rebellion increases, God's promise remains. As human rebellion increases, God's promise remains. The narrative of Genesis 4 unfolds in four scenes where sin is increasing, sin is escalating, and hope seems to be fading. Yet in the final scene, out of the ashes, out of the muck and mire of sin and rebellion and separation from God, we see that hope for restoration remains in the seed of promise. As human rebellion increases, God's promise remains. Four scenes, jealousy, one through seven, treachery, eight through 16, Boastful iniquity, 17 through 24, and then promise loyalty, 25 and 26. Four scenes, that's our outline. First, jealousy, verses 1 through 7. The downward spiral that began in Genesis 3 continues in Genesis 4 and verses 1 and following. We read, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, to know is biblical language for relational sexual intimacy. Adam knew his wife in the fullest, most intimate way through their sexual union, and she gave birth to a son named Cain. And Cain's name is very similar to the Hebrew verb to attain or to get. So she says, I have attained, I have gotten a son from the Lord. Well, then Eve conceives again in verse 2, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. 
Adam and Eve's second son, second born is Abel. And here we find their job descriptions. Abel, a keeper of sheep. Cain, a worker of the ground. Abel, a shepherd. Cain, a farmer. And the narrative clips right along at rapid pace to some future time in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So here we see Cain and Abel presenting offerings from their respective livelihoods. So these are two acts of worship, two acts of devotion to the Lord. But notice the difference in quality. And Cain brings forth an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brings forth the firstborn of his flock and of that, the fat portion, the best portion, the most valuable part of the first. Now, the key here is the comparison. One offering is unremarkable. The other is remarkable. The key is in the comparison. Abel brings forth some of the fruit of the ground. Cain brings forth some of the fruit of the ground. Abel brings forth the firstborn sheep and from that sheep the best Portion, the fat portion, the most valuable portion. There's a differentiation here that reflects a differentiation in their hearts before the Lord. Here we see the heart of worship. The heart of worship is trust in God, faith in the Lord, dependence upon God. How do we see that? Well, in Abel offering the first of his sheep, and of the first, the very best portion of that sheep, he trusted in the Lord. You see, there was no guarantee that another sheep was coming. He had to trust in the Lord that he would provide another sheep in succession. He gave of the first, and of the first, he gave the very best. He didn't withhold it with a white-knuckle grip for himself. He was open-handed. He gave of the first and the best. He trusted God. We see the author of Hebrews comment on this in the faith chapter, Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, and through which Abel was commended as righteous before the Lord. Not righteous because of his kind of work independent of his faith, righteous because he trusted in God and that faith was worked out through action. He gave of his first and of his best. You see, there's a difference in devotion when you compare the offerings of Cain and Abel. And it reflects a difference in their heart disposition before the Lord. Friends, what we offer God of our material provision reflects our heart disposition toward God. Our physical, monetary offerings to God and his church reveal who or what we trust in. A closed-fisted, miserly offering to God reveals a distrust in God, the giver of that gift. You see, we are trusting in focusing more on the gift than we are the giver of the gift. We're fearful of a diminishing supply because we don't trust the supplier. 
We hold on to what he gives to us. Whereas an open-handed, generous offering to God reveals a trust in God. We don't fear a diminishing supply because we trust in the supplier. It comes from his hand. We will trust that he will give in his time. So we don't have to hold on with that white knuckle grip. We can be open-handed. What does your monetary giving to God and his kingdom work in this world reveal about your heart, your faith, what or whom you trust in? See a picture, the heart of devotion, a heart of trust in Abel. And we see a heart of distrust in Cain. Notice the Lord's response to these two offerings. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So the Lord is pleased with Abel and his offering, but he is displeased with Cain and his. This spoken assessment of the respective offerings further opens a window into Cain's heart. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Cain is seething. He is overtaken with jealousy toward his brother and anger toward God. He's just seething inside. The root of jealousy has gotten into his soul. And then God, the perfectly just one, holds out this invitation to Cain. Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You see, God is giving Cain an opportunity to do what's good, to do what's right. It's an invitation here. Cain, look, you do what's right. You walk with me in faith and obedience. It's, it's there for the taking to do what's right. Walk in the way that is healthy and good. But he warns of the power of sin with this vivid predatory illustration. Sin is crouching at the door like a predator lying in wait for its prey. Sin is crouching at the door ready to spring forth and pounce upon its prey. Its desire is for you, Cain. You must master it. And here we see the nature and the power of sin, the severity of sin. Sin is not passive. You see, it's active. Its desire is for us, to overtake us, to master us. Therefore, we must actively fight it. Not passively sit back, actively fight it. This is the backdrop of Jesus' strong words in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 48. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, for it is better for you to enter heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? Because it's better for you to enter heaven with one hand than to enter hell with two. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? Because it's better for you to enter heaven with one foot than to enter hell with two. Strong words. Now, I know that's hyperbole that Jesus is speaking in. It's intentional overstatement for the sake of emphasis. What's Jesus saying? Take sin seriously. 
because its desire is for you, it's like a predator lying in wait, ready to pounce on its prey. You've got to actively fight it. Actively engage it. Not in your own strength. We fight sin, not in our own strength, but by trusting in the one who triumphs over it. Even here in Genesis, we see the word of triumph. Going back to last week, that promise, the first proclamation of the gospel, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the Lord curses the serpent. He says to the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will crush his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Deal a death blow to the serpent and what he stands for, sin and rebellion. We fight sin by trusting in the one who promises to triumph over it. You and I are hopeless to fight sin in this life in our own strength. It is futile. The only way to fight sin is through a desperate clinging to the cross of Christ, the place where sin was triumphed over. Cling to Christ. Plead for his power in the moment of temptation. And when you've fallen, go to the cross. Return to the cross. That's our only hope. If you're here today and you're battling sin, and guess what? That's everybody. Everybody. I understand the manifestation of our sin might be different. We're all battling sin. Cling to the cross. It's our only hope. The place where it's triumphed over. Trust in the one who has promised and executed on that promise to triumph over sin. Take sin seriously. Its desire is for you. You must master it by the strength that God provides. Well, as we soon will see, Cain makes no effort to master his sin. Instead, he is mastered by his sin. Cain's jealousy in verses 1 through 7 give way to treachery in verses 8 through 16. So scene 1, jealousy. Here comes scene 2, treachery. The story continues in such a tragic way. Two brothers, this is awful. I have an older brother, it just makes me want to cry. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. The narrative is so terse, it's so quick. This is classic Hebrew narrative. Selective and limited in the details kind of leaving the reader like scrambling. It's just going so fast. You almost have to read between the lines, but you got to be careful reading between the lines in the Bible. It's fast. Cain speaks to Abel. Well, what did he say? We don't know, but he likely invited him out into isolation into one of his harvest fields. That's where Cain worked. He's out in the field. He invites his brother out in isolation where no one else would see. His mom and dad aren't there so that he can strike his brother down. It's just the, the heart of deception here. So he speaks to Abel, invites him out into isolation in the field, and he's, when no one's around, he strikes him down in a fit of jealousy. Beware the bitter root of jealousy. The root of jealousy, the fruit is wickedness. It'll cause you to move and operate out of hatred, distrust, apathy, theft, murder. Beware the bitter root of jealousy because its fruit is worse. All manner of sinfulness is born forth from that bitter root of jealousy. 
In a fit of jealous rage, he strikes his brother down. And then God comes and asks Cain a question. Where is Abel, your brother? This is parallel to God's question of Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. It's not a locational question. It's not a geographical question. It's a theological one. He approached Adam after Adam and Eve sinned and said, Where are you, Adam? Here, after Cain's sin, he says, Where is your brother, Cain? The Lord knows where Abel is. It's a theological question asked to probe and penetrate the depth of Cain's heart. Well, Cain responds, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? A chilling evasion of responsibility. A chilling, cold-hearted evasion of responsibility. He denies any knowledge of his brother, his whereabouts, what has happened. No remorse, no sin, a chilling evasion of responsibility. Sin is escalating. Do you see it? Increasing in such a tragic way, a sobering way. The Lord then indicts Cain. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the, the ground. This picture of blood crying out to the Lord from the ground, it's used in the rest of Scripture as a paradigm for the innocent victim, the innocent sufferer. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, these words of warning, these words of woe. And notice how he includes this, this language of the righteous blood of Abel crying out. Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the righteous blood of Abel to the righteous blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So Abel is this first righteous sufferer that Jesus Christ himself will then walk the footsteps of. The righteous sufferer whose blood cries out. Cain's indictment continues in verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Adam's curse escalates with Cain. Notice what was Cain's job? To work the ground. Now, because of the blood that he spilled on the ground, it will be fruitless for him. He's now a fugitive and a wanderer, a nomad, moving around, listless. The curse continues because he spilled his brother's blood. It's a treachery, a relationship designed for mutual love and protection. Two brothers, two brothers. Cain was the older brother. He's supposed to protect and care for Abel. The treachery he strikes him down because he's jealous and distrustful toward his God. Notice the repetition here. Five times, five times in this section, verses 8 through 16, the phrase is repeated, his brother, his brother, your brother, my brother, your brother, your brother, 
five times. What is Moses seeking to do here? To emphasize the tender relationship that they had, they were supposed to have, and how it's treacherously destroyed. His brother, his brother, verse 8. Your brother, verse 9. My brother, verse 9. Your brother, verse 10. Your brother, verse 10. This is what sin does. It takes what is good and it destroys it. A relationship of tenderness and trust and care and protection is spoiled because of sin. The very one you were called to love and protect, you murder. Sin is escalating. And then Cain is immediately aware of the gravity of his punishment. We see it in verse 13 and following. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. So he's immediately aware of the severity of his consequences. Alienated from the ground, he no longer can farm. Alienated from God, separated from God's presence. Alienated from society, a fugitive and a wanderer. Sin causes separation in relationship. Nature, God, and people in society. That's what it does. You see it all here with Cain. He's alienated from society. He's going to be a fugitive, a vagabond. People will dread Cain, the murderer, and they will seek to kill Cain before he kills them. Ah, but the Lord extends grace. Verse 15, the Lord said to Cain, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. This is an act of, of, of grace to restrain evil in, in some way, some visible marking. We're not sure what this is. Some visible, recognizable marking on Cain so that people knew not to mess with him. Hands off. Then Cain went, verse 16, away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Notice the separation. Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden of Eden to the east, and now Cain is sent even further away to the east, to Nod. The, the Hebrew word there means to wonder, or no man's land. No man's land. That, that's where he's, he's moving away from the presence of the God. The downward spiral of sin and separation from God continues. Jealousy, scene one. Treachery, scene two. Boastful iniquity, scene three. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he named the city after the name of his son, Enoch. You might be wondering, where is Cain's wife coming from? Because Adam and Eve bore Cain and Abel. There's, no, there's nobody else here, but suddenly Cain's wife shows up. Well, we're given no detail. Again, the, the narrative is very limited and terse. Evidently, presumably, Adam and Eve had other children, a daughter whom Cain then marries and bears a child with. There on goes his lineage. Cain and his offspring move further and further away from the Lord. How do we know that? It's unmistakable in verses 17 through 24, there's no mention of the Lord God. No mention in those seven verses, 17 through 24, no mention of God. It's intentional. 
It's a spiritual statement of Cain and his progeny moving further and further away from God. Sin is escalating. Separation from God is escalating. We read, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Here we see the origin of music and metalwork and animal husbandry. Civilization is beginning to be birthed here. Music, metalwork, tools, rearing livestock, founding cities. All of this is, is, is happening in the context of, of sinfulness. Several generations later, Lamech is born. Lamech is then emblematic of the escalation of sin. Lamech has two wives, verse 23, Ada and Zillah. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. What is going on here? People are moving further and further away from God. Lamech has two wives. Who authorized that? It's a departure from God's good design in Genesis 2. One man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. Now people are doing their own thing. The origin of polygamy. It's a further departure from God's good design of monogamous marriage. Sin is escalating. Down the spiral. Down the spiral. He speaks to his wives in this boastful, tyrannical way. Boasting in his vengefulness. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-seven. Fold. It's a pompous boasting in sinfulness. 77-fold extravagant excess. Notice Lamech's vengeful response is ridiculously disproportionate to his offense. Someone wounded him, injured him, inflicted some kind of pain on him. And what does he do? He responds with this off-the-handle vengefulness murder. 77-fold in the Bible is indicative of extravagant excess. Where do we see it? We see it in the life of Jesus, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, how many times should we forgive our brothers? Seven times, Jesus has asked. No, I tell you, 77 times, which is meant to say an infinite amount of times. Just keep doing the multiplication exponentially. Here it's used in a derogatory way. Lamech's vengefulness is infinitely greater than Cain's, 77 times greater. Sin is escalating. Sadly, sin is escalating. Jealousy, treachery, boastful iniquity, and then fourthly and finally, hope out of the ashes. This promise loyalty. Promise loyalty. Notice we find in verses 25 and 26, in the face of this escalating wickedness and what seems to be a fading hope, we read, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. 
To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Hope rises out of the ashes of sin and separation from God. It harkens back to God's promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity, the Lord says to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That promise is critical in the storyline of the Bible. And here in Genesis 4, in verses 25 and 26, it's tying back to that glorious gospel promise one chapter earlier. The hope of the world in the face of escalating sin is in a baby, is in an offspring, the progeny of Eve, but not through Cain's line, through the line of promise, Seth's line. The hope of the world is through a lineage, a genealogy that will culminate in Christ. That's the hope. That's God's plan is a baby, a human being, God in the flesh to rescue sinners from the downward spiral of their sin. This line of promise is the highway to Jesus Christ. And it's that promise is Genesis 3 verse 15 that we tie into right here. The line of Seth, the line of promise, the one, the line through which Jesus will come. We see this dramatic theological change of direction in verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Through that lineage, the lineage of Seth, the line of promise, people are coming to their spiritual senses and they're beginning to call upon the name of the Lord. It's a an abrupt change, a 180 of, of theological direction. They're turning to the Lord, calling upon his name. It's a picture of worship. They understand their need of their creator. They're calling out to the Lord, returning to the Lord. Friends, despite the depth of your sin, let me invite you, call upon the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call out to your gracious God who forgives your wickedness and mine. He will not refuse your repentance. He will faithfully forgive. Return to the Lord. Call upon him. He is faithful to hear and forgive. When I was a young adult, it's 2004, Laura and I were at a church just outside of Pittsburgh where we were living as newlyweds. And on Thursday night, we would go to this young adult gathering. It was good Bible teaching. So we, we, we appreciated kind of a midweek refresher in the word of God. And I remember this pastor who was pastor of a city, a, a church in the city of Pittsburgh. He came out, was a guest speaker. His name was Ed Glover. And he said this, this line that was actually in the song that we just sang. He said, Brothers and sisters, your sin is deep, but never forget God's grace is deeper still. The muck and the mire that you may be caught in is thick and deep, but God's hand that scoops you out of it goes deeper still. It lifts you up out of the muck and sets you on a firm foundation, and that foundation is Christ. You can have hope in the midst of the muck and the mire because God's grace runs deeper still. Turn to Christ, cling to him. He's our only hope. 
in the midst of the downward spiral of sin, we see it all around us. Trust in Christ and invite others to Christ, whose grace runs deeper still. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your patience and your long-suffering with sinners. Lord, we deserve your judgment, all of it, because of our wickedness. But in Christ, you have borne our judgment, all of it, drank the full cup of wrath that we deserved and set it down, said it is finished. And all who trust in you, that forgiveness is appropriated to us. God, I pray for some who, who, who've not yet trusted in you as Savior, as wrath absorber. God, I pray that they would, by your grace, cling to you, trust in your Son. Lord, and for those of us who are seeking to follow you as Christians, would you empower us by your grace to fight sin daily? as it crouches and waits for you, for, for us, your people, to, to fall. God, help us to trust in you. Give us power to overcome sin and temptation that we might walk and live holy lives in this present age. In Jesus' name, amen.